0: My name is Luke. If I haven't met you yet, good morning. I'm one of the elders here. Um, go ahead and turn in your Bible to James 1. Today, that's the passage that's going to help us see Jesus a little bit more clearly. And we are marching through James as a book. And so we're just going to kind of continue that march. So turn to James, and we're still in chapter 1. And, you know, while they while you turn there, something strange, something unique happens at my house. Um, Just so you know, my wife, she homeschools our children. She's there all day for a good chunk of the week. And the thing is, is we have rhythms down. I mean, the kids, they know they have certain chores that are done a certain way at a certain time. Food is handled a certain way at a certain time. Everything has a routine. Everything runs like a clock. And then occasionally, my wife will leave. Well, I make it sound like she's chained to the house. She leaves often. Okay, I'm saying occasionally there's a moment where I'm in, injected into her world, right? And these routines are lost on me. I mean, I don't, I don't get the rhythms. I don't understand where everything goes. And so very often you'll hear phrases like this in my household. That's not how mom does it. mom does it a little bit differently than this, did you know that, did you call mom before, Okay, I'll do that if you want me to do it but just so you know, this is how mom does it, about 95% of the time I like better how mom does it than how I'm about to do it, right and this is something that we see as a, as a truism, whether it is in a family, whether it's in a, a city, a state, a country, I mean, even the NFL, any, even sports. Anytime you get a new ruler, a new authority, with new rules, people get confused. People are like, well, I thought I knew what was up and down, and now you're telling me it's upside down. We see this a lot. I will, I will even say that if you are a Christian, do you even remember the new way of life after you became a Christian, the new routines, the new rhythms. Things are just different. You're, you're imaging a different king. You used to be the king, and now you have a king. Right? I remember learning that, man, I handle time differently now. I handle money. Money is different now. Girls are different now. My mouth is different now. I mean, everything's different. And what it did as a young Christian is it provoked a lot of confusion. There was a small amount of time where I was like, I don't know, really, what's up from down. I mean, praise God for coaches and pastors in my life that helped me through all of that. The reason I'm saying all that is because this is a little bit of what James is having to do in this passage that we're dealing with today. The passage that's going to lead us today is where James is talking to a church of Jews that are scattered throughout greater Palestine. Right? They all become Christians. And now the old world, old rules, are colliding with this new world, with new rules. That's what we're seeing. And they're they're kind of in that fog, right? So let's just read. We're going to go through it. It'll be on the screen. If you have your Bible, it's in uh, verse 12. We're going to do verses 12 through 18. And it starts off this way. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits for His creatures. Now, here we have it. James is talking to a group of people, and this, these are the kind of things that they're saying. These are the phrases that James is hearing that provokes this in his letter. I had to sin. I didn't have a choice. I mean, my situation, it's forcing me to do it. There's too much temptation in front of me. There's too much on me. There's too much before me. By the way, where where do my temptations come from? Is it me? Is it the devil? Is it the world? These are the thoughts that are going on. And I'll tell you, this is one of those passages in the Bible that I'm so excited. It is very clear to us, clear to me, that the Bible is a living word. Because what it's confronting over two millennia ago and young believers and churches is the same thing it's doing today. Right on the way to church <laughs> this afternoon. It's going to confront us in the same way. We live in this fog. Because just like the early Christians, we can do this thing where we sin in our temptation and then we manufacture excuses very easily. And eventually, we pin the blame on God. It sounds weird, because you don't ever really hear yourself blaming your sin on God. But we do. And we actually got this from Adam, our father. Adam did this, right? Hey, I sinned, Lord, but, I mean, this is the woman you gave me, right? Let me remind you, I mean, yes, I sinned, I did it, we're having this discussion, but this wouldn't be a discussion we'd be having if you didn't give me woman. I mean, logically, let's just think about it, God, it's really your fault that I sinned. That's what he did, and that's what we do. We do this. But no one really just walks around and says, God is tempting me to evil. I mean, has anyone ever heard anyone say that? I don't remember ever saying that. It's not something that we say, but we know that if God orders our feet and he forms our moments, if this is something that God really does, then it's easy for us to just go ahead and carry it another step and just pin the blame for our sin on him. We do this. I mean, we might not say it like God is tempting me to sin, but we might say something like God has set up my life and my surroundings so that I have no choice. Right? Then we do that. I mean, biologically, genetically, I just have a proclivity to this sin. My dad did it. My grandpa did it. My great-grandpa did it. It's genetics in me. I just have to do it. It's not really my fault. I just do it. What about my past? Sometimes we could use past. I mean, I came from an abused home. I had one parent. I had a mom. I just had a dad. I was abused. I was an abuser. I was moving a lot. I was in and out of schools. Therefore, this is what I do. I'm a victim of my past, or I'm a victim of my genetics. Or maybe I'm just a victim of my circumstances. Don't you see this, God? Don't you see what I'm in right now? The only way that I can survive right now, or succeed, is to sin. And God, you could have changed that. You could have changed my past, and you didn't. You could have changed my genetics, and you didn't. You allowed me to be in this situation, so here I am. So, therefore, Father, it is your fault that I'm sinning. Ultimately, the blame is on you. So, I mean, let's just zoom it in a little bit more because that's kind of broad. Let's come up with a little game where I'm going to give you some phrases that we might say on an everyday basis. Okay? How about this one? I'm yelling at you because you keep interrupting me. Anyone ever done this? Did I just dream that up? Right? This is what that's translated to. I'm sinning in my rage and anger because I have to in order for truth to prevail in this moment because you're not hearing good reason and I've got good reason to give right and by the way God if you had given me a better wife husband, kids, roommate then they might be listening but they're such a bad listener and their life is such a mess Lord that I'm having to sin in order just to speak right so I have to be angry and flip out on them so when you think about it Lord it's not really my fault at all it's their fault I mean, there's a little bit of blame you have, too, right? This is what we do. We never say it like that, though, do we? But if you continue tracing it, that's exactly where we're going. How about this one? I'm getting drunk, or I'm getting high because my life stinks, and this is a pretty good escape, right? Translation. I'm in this sin right now because it is the only way I can find fulfillment. And, Lord, you're the one that dealt me this nasty hand, God, you are the one that set up my life where the past is the way it was and my present is the way it is. And because of that, I've got no choice. This is the only way I can find peace. This is the only way clarity comes. This is the only way escape comes. So I have to do this. So really, Father, because you allowed this and you could have changed it and you didn't, you're to blame. What about this one? This is a fun game, isn't it? How about this one? I lust after women or men because my wife is or my husband is not serving me anymore. She's not affectionate towards me anymore. Right? Translation. I have to do this because I have biological urges and she is being disobedient or he is being disobedient and very unaffectionate. What am I supposed to do with these urges which are God-given, by the way? What am I supposed to do with them? Right? I've got to do something. I mean, God, it's really your fault because if you'd given me an obedient wife or husband, if you'd done this, then I wouldn't be struggling with lust, which is a total lie. So God, I mean, realistically, it's a little bit your fault. I mean, did any of these start to ring true? How about this one? I'm a bad steward. I'm a bad manager of my time, my talents, and my treasure. And I'm not very generous to the community of God, whether it be a church or a missionary or whatever. I'm just not generous because I just don't have any to give, right? Translation, God, you've given me a cruddy job. You've given me a clogged up schedule and you've not gifted me. So I have no choice but to not be generous. Right? I have no choice. If you'd given me a better job, I'd be more generous. If you'd given me a, a, a different schedule book, I'd be more generous with my time. If you'd given me more giftings, I would actually invest in the community of God. So really, God, you're the one that dealt me this hand. You're the one that created my little universe the way it is, and so I can't be generous. I can't do what your word tells me to do. It's really your fault. Folks, this is how we say I'm being tempted by God. This is how we do it today, to draw that text out a little bit. Someone or something tempts us, we sin, we put it right at God's feet. So James just starts this conversation by saying, go ahead and just give up the It's God's fault act. Go ahead and just give it up. Because God does not tempt us to sin, and He Himself cannot be tempted. He's impervious to temptation. And He does not use it to tempt us to evil. Now, what James is not saying is that God does not allow us to go through trial and temptation. Because He does. right? He's not saying that. All He's saying is He does not directly tempt us to sin. He does not entice His followers to scandal. He does not seduce us to failure. In fact, He does the opposite, and He cheers us on in our temptation towards obedience. This is what He does. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.13, and it will be up on the screen as well. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the easiest way to think about this, for me, is to remember that God is a good father, and good dads do not inflict temptation towards evil towards their kids. Good dads don't do that, but good dads will allow their kids to go through trial and temptation, won't they? I mean, why does a good dad do that? I mean, someone throw out an answer. Why would a good dad allow a kid to go through a trial or a temptation? Growth. Growth. That's a big one. Growth. Wisdom. Wisdom. Show him that he loves them. Show him. That he loves them. Maturity. Trying to perfect us over time. Hey, I remember the day that my dad moved me into my, my dorm as a freshman. I went straight from high school straight into a dorm. And I remember carrying boxes up to the 12th floor of Texas Tech. And my dad being behind me it wasn't even day one of school. And we're tripping over beer bottles. We're tripping over all kinds of the residue of depravity that would come with a college campus. And the look on my dad's face, like, oh, my gosh. I'm about to leave my son here. This is about to be his new reality, his new normal. But there's also a look on his face and a resolution that this will be good for him. I'm going to cheer him on. He is going to be tempted. He is going going to be tempted to do all kinds of things. But by the time he leaves us, by God's grace, he will be grown. He will be matured. He will be a better version of who he is now. And it's not just growth and maturity. God will also allow us to go through trials and temptations so that we glorify him better. Because after all, it's not all about us, right? Jesus goes in the water. He gets baptized, comes straight up out of the water. What's the first thing that happens? God's Spirit ushers and leads him right into temptation for 40 days. Wow. In which he glorified God in that time. So, James doesn't leave it open for us. He doesn't just say, hey, it's not God, so give that up. It's a ridiculous argument. He doesn't say that and just leave it. He actually leads us into where sin and temptation comes from. He spells it out. Verse 14, look at verse 14, and that will be up on the screen as well. But each person is tempted, it says, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now look at those words right there, lured and enticed. In the original language, those are hunting and fishing terms. Which is it's not too hard to see that, right? Hunting and fishing terms. I mean, think of the fish swimming around in a coral, behind a rock. I don't know where fish swim, but swimming in a safe place. And then they see this lure. It looks like a bug or a smaller fish or whatever. And they think in their mind, man, it looks pretty good. And so they go after it, except they don't see that hook, Right that gets them right in the gills or the eye or whatever and before you know it that fisherman's reeling them in in the boat clanked in the head the fish is dead you know I don't know if fishermen really do that they don't (laughs) Rich is like don't don't they end up dead okay we can all agree on that they're dead in the boat so what is it, what, why, why would he use that language and what does that mean for us? The fish takes it because he wants to. He's compelled by a desire. He's not made to do that. Listen friends, if you get drunk, that's because you want to. If you yell at your spouse, it's because you want to. If you daydream about another spouse, that's because you want to. If you lie, it's because you want to. If you cheat, if you steal, it, it's because you want to. You want to do these things. Nothing makes you do it. I'm going to prove it here in a minute. Jerry Bridges. He's a brilliant theologian, and he always says he, he tries to get his um, listeners to understand we should change our language from using the language of defeat when we talk about sin. I'm a victim. I'm here because of it's my surroundings, my past, my whatever. Changing it from the language of defeat to the language of disobedience, because that's what it is. This is what Tim Chester says, and. This is a great quote. He kind of defines sin for us. He says, We sin because we believe the lie that we are better off without God, that His rule is oppressive, that we will be free without Him, and that sin offers more than God. Now listen, the enemy has a hand in you sinning in temptation. The enemy, the world, has a hand in it. But you friends, me, we're taking the bait because we want to. And the thing about this verse is, we actually, if you read how it's written, we actually bait and build our own trap. (laughs) It's by our own desire that this happens. We build and bait it. In fact, this is what it says in Psalm 7. It says, Behold, and now I am almost... Go ahead and go to the next slide. In In this Psalm, I'm almost... Convinced that James had this in mind whenever he wrote this because the language is almost dead on. I mean, I could never know that for certain, but it just feels like he had this in mind when he wrote this in James. This is what it says in Psalms Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. You see, we do it. We do it. But how does this start? I mean, how? How do we build our own traps, snares, and hooks? How do we bait it? I'll tell you, it starts with desires. And that's what this passage is teaching us. When we allow desires, urges, hungers, however you want to describe it, our will, when we allow it to run rampant inside of us and unchecked, always thinking in our mind that we're safe as long as it doesn't get out, then we're baiting our own trap. Because that's a lie. But we do that, don't we? I could think and hunger for anything I want. I could have desires, sinful desires, for anything I want. I could let my heart lean into anything I want, as long as it never materializes and comes out. As long as it never rears its ugly head and exposes me. As long as that never happens, I'm good to go. Right? That's why we hear things like, Hey, it's okay to window shop. Right? Husbands, don't we hear that? See it on TV, we hear our buds say that? That's what it is. That's that same lie. If you could keep it inside and don't let the monster out of the cave, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. So you end up with secret things, internal things, secret stares, secret thoughts, secret offenses, and it just starts to build and build like a nasty lint brush until before you know it, you have conceived sin which leads to death. That's how it works. And the enemy would love for you to think that it will stay secret. The enemy would love for you to, hey, you keep scratching my back, I'll keep scratching your back. I'll meet your needs if you just let me stay here. Just cut me a deal. That's what the enemy does. That's how it works. But desire by design Desire, whether it's for God or for sin, desire is designed to come out manifest. Desire is designed, by its very design, is supposed to come out materialized and be something bigger than just something that's secret. So you can't dupe it. It says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to death. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings. Oh gives birth to sin, forgive me. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So he's basically saying that nothing stays merely a hunger. The hunger will eventually betray you and come out as sin, which will all take you all the way to death. And I know that sounds weird. I know as soon as I say death, you're like, death, golly. I mean, all I do is just think about that chick. All I do is think about a better life. How is that going to lead to death? All I, do, I mean, I might have a little bit of anger inside my heart, but death It's a far jump, Luke. Let's look at it. What, let's look at adultery, which is effectively, potentially, the death of a marriage. I mean, I think we could agree on that. It's the death of a marriage. Where does it start, if not for desires and hungers? I mean, isn't that true? You hunger for somebody who does not belong to you. The hunger turns into dreams and thoughts and, and intensified desires, which turns into little comments Maybe you'll say something that her husband doesn't say or maybe his wife doesn't say. And that turns into cute little text messages, a couple lunches, shared thoughts. Here's my story. I enjoy your story. Shared moments. And before you know it, friend, you've blown up a marriage, maybe two, right? Death of a marriage. I mean, look at rage. Look at rage. I mean, rage definitely could result in death, but at minimum, maybe death of a relationship. It starts off with the desire. What does a person that struggles with anger or fits of rage really desire? They desire to be first and in control and correct. I'm right, I'm in control, and my anger is me showing you that you're not letting me be in control, so I'm going to man up on you, punch a hole in the wall, scream, because that's how I gain control of this situation. That's what anger is, right? So it starts with, I'm really ticked off. I've got a burning desire to let that person know how in charge I am to let them know that I'm right and they're wrong. Is that, that thing starts to flare up, and then all of a sudden, what does it look like when it materializes? Mumbling, rolling eyes, phrases, now you're saying stuff, and then you start saying stuff with teeth in it, and then you turn up the volume, and you start flailing and swinging and throwing, and before you know it, you've blown up a relationship, right? Saying you can allow a desire to exist and not get burned is like being the stupid fish that says I could just eat that bait all day and never get hooked. That's basically what it is. We cannot cut a deal. Allowing it to grow and build, it will kill us in the end. You know, I saw this movie um, whenever I was a little, little kid. In the early 80s, it had come out in the 70s, but by the time the 80s came, it was on TV. And I remember my mom was washing dishes in the kitchen. I don't know the name of the movie, and I'm not saying it's a good movie to watch. So if you track it down, that's on you. But in the movie was Clint Eastwood, and he was a trucker and a bare-knuckle fighter. And he trucked across the country, you know, looking for his long-lost love, which that's got all the makings of a good movie, in my opinion. So he's got, but his co-pilot in this movie was an orangutan, a monkey, a big monkey, and I was just fascinated with that. How can that work? But he did. He, he helped him out in some fist fights. He was just a good buddy, always agreed with you. And when that movie was over, I remember walking in the kitchen and going, Mom, I want an orangutan. And she said, son, why would you want a big monkey? And I said, well, the deal is this. I mean, he could help me out in fights at school. He would get me a Pepsi. He'd be my bud. He can, she goes, well, I don't think that normal people can have wild animals as pets. And I'm like, well, riddle me this. I just watched the movie, and Clint Eastwood had one. If a trucker can do it, I think we can pull it off. She goes, well, I don't think you can afford an orangutan. I said, well, I'll start saving. And so for about three weeks, I've started saving all of my money to buy an orangutan who I was going to turn named Clyde, just like Clint did. Now, suppose I had actually saved enough money and the laws of the state of Texas had allowed me to purchase an orangutan and keep it in my home. I'd have been this little baby orangutan. Oh look how cute he is. And feeding him with a bottle like you see on TV, a little diaper, he coos at you, rock him. Even his poop is real cute, it's real small, it doesn't stink. But then what happens after four or five years? He's not wearing a diaper anymore. And his poo is not cute, he's throwing it. And he doesn't let you come near him with a a bottle of anything. And he's not cuddling with you. He's ripping your face off, right? Because he's a big monkey. And that's the thing it is. I mean, you see it on YouTube. You see it on the news. A dude, just he's just resolved to raise a grizzly bear as a cub. And fast forward, and he's missing an arm now. And he's telling his story online. Friends, that's how it is with our sin. Oh, look how cute. Just keep feeding it. It's not really making a big mess. And the messy mess it doesn't really stink that bad, right? So I'm just going to keep feeding it. Feeding the monkey. And before you know it, you're dead. Or something in your life is dead your marriage, your relationship. Now, here's my major warning. This is my major, 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 major warning in this text. You cannot stop reading this passage right here. That's my warning. If you stop reading this passage at this point, and this is as far as you're willing to take it, then what you will end up with is your mechanism of getting out of sin and your temptation is rules, regulations, resolutions, accountability partners. You'll do everything you can externally to get sin out of your life. But let me tell you, you cannot rule yourself out of desire. You can't lay down enough regulations and resolutions to get rid of desire. It's in there. It's in there. You know, you can take a drug addict, someone who's really addicted, and immediately take the drugs away. Does it make that person less of an addict right then? No, because your rules of you can't have anymore doesn't rid that desire. The desire isn't for a chemical, it's for what the chemical provides. right? The clarity, the peace, the joy, the happiness. You're, taking, you're trying to take a desire by imposing a rule. What about, you know, for years when I was a campus pastor, I I mean, just armies of young men that struggled with lust. Armies of men. You know what a lot of them would tell me? Luke, as soon as I get married, this will go away. And I would just laugh uncontrollably. No, it won't. It'll get worse, friend. It'll get worse. It doesn't go away. Because you can't add the rules and the regulations, you can't add a covenant of marriage to your sinful desire and see so it just go away. It doesn't work that way. What you need is an outcompeting desire. You need something big enough to press that old sinful desire out. You have to live a life. You, what is required is living a life where you're so satisfied and fulfilled with God's joy, with God's rulership, His authority, with His gospel in your life, that there is no Room for a sinful desire to roost. It simply has to be out competed. You have to love something more than you love your sin. You have to lose your taste for sin in 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 and have a deeper taste in something else. That is what's required. Think about it. How do you get a big sumo wrestler out of a room? It's not a trick question, but I will tell you one thing. You don't walk in there and give them a cute little curfew. I want you out by this time. I'm gonna nail here's an evacuation route, I'm nailing it to the wall. If he doesn't want to leave, he's not leaving, friend. You've got to go get a bigger sumo wrestler. and You've got to get nasty on him. That's how you... You have to out-compete. And that's the way it is with our desires and our hungers. I tell you, today, today, this very day, I need a bigger desire for God that I would quit sinning against God. I need a bigger desire for His authority so that I would stop being rebellious against His authority. This is what is required. So how do we get this? How do we get this desire? How do, how do you just not like sin anymore? How do you just love something else more than what you're doing right then? And listen, my answer is, for some of you, going to make you feel really ripped off. Because it's boringly predictable for many of you. And I say it every single week and I do it on purpose. We have to go back to the gospel. We have to go back. To, what do you mean, Luke? I'm going to explain. We have to go back to the gospel. Because it is in Christ alone that this new affection erupts in us that we lose a taste and have no room left for what we used to be hungry for. In Christ alone that happens. So we preach the gospel to ourselves. We preach every day. We preach it to each other every day. We live it. We read it. We eat it. We pray it. We rotate around it. We remind ourselves. We pray it all the time. We say it in different ways. It is going back to the gospel and asking God to help us with that, that by His power, the power of His Holy Spirit, He starts to change the desires of our heart. Luke, how do you know this? Look at verse 17. It says, "...every good gift and every perfect gift is from above." Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, and right there you might as well just stick desire in, because in the original language it's interchangeable. Of his own will or desire, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That just simply means gospel. That's interchangeable also with gospel. So of his own will or desire, he brought us forth by the gospel or his word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So look at this. Look at the language that he has up on the screen. Earlier, it says that in our sin, we bring forth death. And that is our desire. But his desire is to bring forth the gospel. So do you see how his desire is better than our desire? We desire sin. We desire sin. And that brings forth death. He says, I desire life. I desire life for you I want to bring life out of your death my desire is better than yours it's also stronger it's also stronger with our sin we conceive death but with his desire he conceives a family it's stronger because we look at God and we say things like in our spirit anyway I desire this sin more than I desire you and he says I desire to come and rescue you we'll see how it works we'll see who's stronger and that's what grace is even in his face. Grace is whenever we say, I desire this more than I desire you. And he says, it doesn't matter to me because I desire you and my grace is stronger. Grace is blessing and salvation coming to us totally despite us, even though we don't deserve it and don't even want it a lot of times. That's what grace is. So it's stronger. It's better and it's stronger. We are the stupid fish, folks. I am the stupid fish eating the bait every chance I get, coming out of protection, getting hooked and reeled in. And it, to use James's illustration, Christ is taking me off the hook and putting himself on it. So, Christianity is not a religion of rules and regulations, Christianity is a relationship of come and see. Come and see. Come and taste. Come and see that God is good, that His gospel reigns, that His gospel is powerful. I mean, He is the giver of good gifts and perfect gifts. So good that here I am as a wretch, He gives me His treasure so that I would be His treasure. I didn't deserve it. I'm sinning. And I, I remember the day I got saved. I didn't even ask for it. I didn't even want it. And then there was one moment where God just intoxicated my heart. And I knew I was ruined for anything else but Christ. And that was the moment that Christ in my heart made that change for me. Something very beautiful. So let me just say, whatever you think you must have this morning, whatever you think you must have as far as a desire or urge, God is better. Whatever you think has you locked up, God is better. He's stronger. So let me try to land this. I'm going to be done in just a minute. I'm going to look at a couple of examples of what this looks like to see the gospel start to purge an old desire out and see a new desire come in. Because it's great to talk up in the clouds, but if we bring it back down to street-level warfare, it looks like this. Hey, if you're an angry person and I could be this guy... A panicky, angry person. If this is you, the real thing that's going on is you desire to be in control and you desire to be right. At that time where you find yourself in the throes of that, let the gospel remind you that He is great and in control and you don't need to be. He's sovereign and He's ruler, and even though you want to be the sovereign ruler, He is. And so you can let go of the anger. You can let go because He's in control, even if you're not. And He's always right even though you're always not. (laughs) This is what produces anger, but this is what the gospel sounds like towards it. Listen, it redefines you. Think about it next time. Tell yourself next time you're in a fight and you feel out of control and you start to feel panicked because you feel like God's not involved. You feel like he's left you and you're trying to establish your correctness, your sovereignty, your rule. Because there's a piece of you that wants to be your own ruler king. In that middle of that argument that that's going on, take a breath. I did this the other day. A minute, it takes some practice. Just take a breath and say, you know what? Right now I'm irked to say it in a PG way. I am irked and mad that I am not getting my way right now. But God is in control. And you know how God proved that He was in control? He's done it in a few ways. But the big one that should be sticking out like a big... Just, he could have left Jesus in a tomb to rot because that's what the world was thinking was happening. Jesus dies on the cross gets stuffed into a tomb and the whole world's freaking out. Oh my gosh, what's happening? Everything is out of control. I thought we were right. And the panic starts to set in. But what did God do to prove that he was in control and that he was right? He took one who was in control and who was always right for us, and he raised him from the dead, leaving a tomb vacant. That is his calling card, folks. Anytime you are wondering if God is in control, think of an empty tomb. Then look at your problem. How does it measure up? Because my problems never measure up to a Savior rotting in a tomb. (laughs) I don't have anything that's that strong, anything that that, that, that is that nasty. And so the tomb reminds me. So I preach that to myself. And then you know what? Because this is a struggle for me. Anger or panic can be a struggle for me. Tomorrow morning, folks, I'm going to preach it to myself again. And then the next day, I'm going to preach it. And the next time I find my blood pressure going up, I'm going to preach it to myself again. In different ways, in different forms, I will explore, study, and remind myself of the sweetness of God's grace. And I know... I know by my prayers that God will come in with His Holy Spirit and start to change my desire. So I will eventually, by His grace, be so satisfied with His sovereignty that I take my hand off of mine. Let's look at lust. Lust is, for, for many of you who struggle with that, we lust and desire what does not belong to us. In that moment that we're struggling with that, we should remind ourselves of God's gospel. Remind ourselves that God is good. Good. Therefore, we we don't have to look horizontally anymore for what he's already provided for us vertically. We don't have to do that. Let the gospel remind you that God fills our satisfactions and our desires. The world and creation isn't able to do that. In moments, yes. In lustful moments, there will be that moment where you're like, this is meeting my need. And you might really feel like that, but that's a Polaroid. That's just a moment. You can't think a moments. Zoom out. Does it really fulfill you? No. That's why you keep going back to it. That's why you keep going back to it. Jesus telling the Samaritan woman, you know, you could drink from this water, which I'm sure is pretty good, but you're just going to be thirsty again. I mean, this should be part of your gospel to yourself. Part of your gospel fluency should sound like this. You could drink that water, but you're just going to be thirsty again. Don't think in moments. Jesus brings a water where you will never thirst again, ever again. Right? There's a piece of us because we don't believe that God is really that good. We believe that God did something really good, but we don't believe He can meet our raging needs. So the piece of us that says, God, I have to have this image in my head. I have to have this desire and this urge in my heart to be fulfilled. And that's a direct confrontation of the gospel. So your gospel has to sound a lot different. And you have to continually remind yourself every day. Every day you have to tell yourself this. Every day. Men, get your wives to help preach this to you. Men, preach it to your wives. Preach it to your kids. Get very gospel fluent in what it looks like to see a desire for God's fulfillment come in and press out what was there that you were just feasting on, which was lust, right? So, what now? As I finish, what now? That really depends on you. What are you hungry for? I mean, what, what, are you deep, what is your deepest desire? Because I'll tell you, there are different lures for different fish and you'll look across the room, and someone will be struggling with something that you're just not, and vice versa, right? That's the thing about it. They're personalized. They're customizable, these temptations are, aren't they? So what is it that you're hungry for? And now ask yourself, what does it look like when the gospel collides with it? What does it look like when the gospel collides with that temptation that rages inside of you? What does it sound like? What does it look like? What are the images that come up? You need to get good at that. You need to get good. How do you sound whenever you remind yourself? How do you sound whenever you remember it? Whenever you announce the gospel over your specific temptation. I mean, like we said, are you angry? Are you panicked? God is in control. It should be a part of what you say to yourself and your spouse and your community. (laughs) It should be. What's the proof? An empty tomb. Do some of you struggle with not being generous with your time and your talent and your treasure? some of you, i mean some of you don't listen this is a great example of what i'm talking about some of you you don't struggle with that at all you're like i'll be there here's my gifting here's my check and you just give 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 generous and you don't even think for 1 minute that god won't replenish or build back you don't even think about that some of you my goodness you're locked down in that some of you really really struggle with that right so what would the gospel sound like to you in that moment right god is generous what's the proof the incarnation. Jesus coming to mankind would be a good place to start. The gospel that Jesus came to the sludge of mankind, looking like us, but not acting like us, breathing our air, putting on our skin, living a perfect life, dying and living again. Right? He's generous. He gave the depth of his treasure. There was nothing more valuable he could have given us. Right? You know, I would say that we need to develop that. And we're going to pray about it here in a little bit in, in our time of worship. We're going to, I've got some people coming up that's going to kind of lead us in prayer as we, as we try to engage God on this to help us. But I'll also say this just on the way out of this message. I would encourage you in this, as you start battling or continue battling with the sin in your life, always, always end your thoughts and end your prayers not on what you have done, but what on God has done. There are some brilliant men in the past who have said, for every one look you take at your sin, take a hundred looks at what God has done. End in worship. End in pronouncing how huge God is. Because, I mean, there needs to be a moment where you say, oh my gosh, look what I've done. But you need to end on, oh my goodness, God, look what you have gone off and done. Look what you have done. You've done something amazing. Let that guide you as you pray, as you work through this. And then I'll say this, and this is my last thing, so the team can go ahead and and come up. Some of you are still at a place where you are resolved. You are firmly rooted and resolved that your sin is better than God. And you are not going to let go of that thing, just whatever that thing is. Some of you are, are very far from God, very far from Christ, and you are totally fine. You are totally fine living this life where you are a slave and you are in motion with wherever those desires and those urges lead you. And that is why you keep trying to fill unsuccessfully, you keep trying to fill and find satisfaction. That is, that is why that keeps happening to you. And the thing is, is it's never going to come. Without Christ, you are never going to have that filling and that satisfaction. You will always be in that moment where it feels good for a second and then it's gone. That will be your life. And you will eventually, it will bring forth not just death in a relationship or death in a marriage. It will bring forth death. There will be death. You will be that fish that for the last time takes the bait, gets reeled in the boat, and that's it. That's the life you have. That's my warning to you. Don't let this be a day that goes by. Don't let one more day go by where you choose sin over God. Don't do it. Don't let one more day go by where you call yourself king over him. Don't let one more day go by.